I think in this era of um, uh, patients getting downstaging chemotherapy and that being the standard of care, you really want to place your metal stents, okay, in these in borderline resectable and certainly in metastatic patients. Good morning, good evening, or good afternoon. Welcome to Endocast. I'm your host, Tony Ray. This is episode five with our physician guest, Rabindra Watson from Cal Pacific Medical Center in San Francisco. Endocast is a GI-focused podcast for clinicians by clinicians, presented to you by Boston Scientific. Together, we'll take a closer look at the data, techniques, and insights of endoscopy that matter most to listeners like you. Dr. Watson, welcome. Uh, Thanks, Tony. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's great to have you here. We are recording live from EUS Live with uh, Dr. Rabindra Watson. Yeah, thanks for having me on. This is uh, very exciting. Just for the audience out there, we want to get to know you a little bit. So I just want to ask you a few questions kind of about, uh, you know, where you grew up, Dr. Watson. You know, how'd you wind up in GI? And, you know, why why did you choose interventional endoscopy? Yeah, so um, I actually was uh, born in Michigan. So I'm actually still a Michigan fan. Uh, Moved to California when I was uh, three years old. Uh, My parents got tired of the cold. And we moved up to the Bay Area. And I lived and grew up in the Bay Area uh, my whole life. Um, so similarly, I'm an A's, uh, Warriors and Niner fan as well. Um, and, uh, yeah, I got interested in medicine. Uh, my parents actually are both physicians, so it's a pretty common story. My dad, uh, still practices internal medicine. We can't get him to retire. Uh, my mom is a pediatrician and we've actually had physicians in my family going back to the 1700s. So it was almost the, the family trade, uh, so to speak. And so, uh, when I, I, I matched in internal medicine, um, and doing my elective rotations, I, uh, rotated with the GI team and I thought, wow, this is pretty neat. You get to do procedures. It's very intellectual as well. Um, and what really sold me was the personalities of everyone I work with. I mean, these guys all have a sense of humor. They're poop doctors. <laughs> you gotta have a little bit of a sense of humor to work with that. And, um, and so it was a good blend of using you know, your physical skill, you're using your hands and also using your, your intellect to try and help patients. Um, and then once we got, uh, to the GI fellowship, I started seeing some of the interventional endoscopy procedures and I said, wow, this is where medicine is going. I mean, this is the growth field where, you know, the new technology that's come out just within the last, you know, 10 years since I've been in training, it's just been remarkable. And I said, I want to be a part of this. I want to apply the best of technology, do good research and help patients. And it's been, it's been a great, uh, great ride so far. Yeah, it's incredible to see just the innovation in the space over the last, really, just ten to fifteen years. Uh, the, the the curve has just been very steep. So, yeah. Um, tell me a little bit more about Cal Pacific, and I just want to kind of learn a little bit more about uh, your interventional EUS program. And my understanding is you have a pretty strong bariatric program too. Correct? Uh, yeah, yeah. So, um, uh, so as you may know, uh, Ken Binmoller started the practice there uh, fifteen plus years ago. Um, with an opportunity to sort of create a new interventional program from scratch, which is pretty rare. Um, of course, Shyam has done that here uh, in Orlando. Um, but it's unique in the sense that um, rather than sort of differentiate off of AGI division, we're able to create our own practice, our own space, our dedicated space, dedicated scopes, et cetera. Um, so what that's allowed us to do is to focus on, um, interventional EOS and all forms of, uh, interventional endoscopy, sort of conduct high quality research there, um, and really focus our practice, both in terms of our nursing staff, our support staff. So everybody's focused on doing interventional procedures and that's really exciting and very unique. Um, and then, 
so Ken had recruited me up from UCLA to start the bariatric program uh, at uh, CPMC. Um, so we've now created a new program from scratch over the last uh, two years um, in collaboration with the medical center, endocrinology, our surgical colleagues. Um, so that's been great. We've been uh, uh, performing more and more um, uh, endoscopic sleeve gastroplasties and other um, endoscopic interventions for obesity. So this morning, I think we're going to talk to the audience a little bit about uh, patients with confirmed diagnosis of pancreas cancer and how you're managing those patients with distal biliary obstruction. Let's just kind of start off, you know, right off the bat. Uh, for a patient that you've already got a confirmed diagnosis, and that was confirmed uh, via EUS with fine needle biopsy or fine needle aspiration, plus a confirmed diagnosis via CT scan and the patient with ascending bilirubin. At that point, before your ERCP, is there any way to tell if the tumor has invaded the bile duct? And does that matter at all? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. So um, it's difficult, I'll say that. Um, on cross-sectional imaging, I think it's very difficult to tell whether, you know, by CT or, or MRI or MRCP, whether there's actually tumor in the duct. EUS can be very helpful, and um, I really favor performing EUS and actually looking at the duct itself not just at the tumor and the tumor staging, but also looking actually actually at the duct because, number one, it can help you uh, in terms of looking at the course of the duct as it courses through the pancreas, how you're going to approach your cannulation. Also, if you can if you if you take the time and compare where the pancreatic duct and and the bile duct insert into the ampulla, that can also kind of give you a little bit of uh, uh, help when you look at your cannulation and, and and lining up your angles for the ERCP. It can also tell, it can help you see whether there's actually some irregularity of the duct and the, whether the tumor is invaded. But ultimately, I, I doubt that it really matters because at the end of the day, they have a malignant biliary obstruction. Your job is to get a stent in there. Um, I don't think it's going to affect how easy it is to place a stent or not. I think oftentimes these distal obstructions are very difficult regardless. Um, and your job is just to get access and to get a stent in there. So for the patient with full-blown metastatic disease, is it possible to tell how long that patient's going to live based on the EUS imaging or the vascular involvement? I mean, how, can you predict that at all? Yeah, I think it, it, as an endoscopist, it's difficult for us to say that. We know that pancreas cancer in general has a poor prognosis, particularly in the setting of metastatic disease at the time of diagnosis. Um, so um, I think Bottom line, patients are going to have a pretty poor prognosis, five-year survival on the order of, you know, 4%. Um, so uh, they're not going to generally do well from a long-term survival. There's not much we can tell from an EUS imaging standpoint. I think that's really driven by tumor biology and, uh, and things like that that are beyond the, probably the scope of what uh, we're comfortable dealing with. Yeah, it, it's a sad fact uh, that these patients don't live very long, but it's good to know that, you know, you're doing everything you can for them. Next question, how do you assess the risk for cholecystitis when you're stenting these patients? Yeah, that's a great question. That comes up all the time, and we, we talk about this amongst ourselves or at courses. And, you know, I think the when we had the advent of uh, metal stents, then fully covered and partially covered, which I'm sure we'll get into later, um, we loved it. It's great. You get great drainage, durable drainage, um, perform better than plastic stents. Um, but then the question came up, well, if we're placing a, a covered stent, are we occluding the cystic duct? Um, there has been a lot of literature on this in terms of um, looking at rates of cholecystitis with different types of stents. I think the bottom line is that when you 
do your cholangiogram, when you do your EUS, and you're looking at the tumor as it relates to the bowel duct and the cystic duct, the question you have to ask yourself is, is tumor involving the cystic duct? Do you think that there's tumor sort of crawling up the duct or affecting the duct in that area? In those situations, I think you're going to be at the highest risk for, for inducing cholecystitis. Um, when you can avoid uh, uh, covering or occluding the cystic duct with your stent, regardless of what type of stent you place, I think you're in the best shape. Um, and so if you can place a shorter stent, for example, maybe a 10-4 versus a 10-6, if you think you can, you can do that and avoid the cystic duct insertion, I think then you're uh, in better stead. Um, but at the end of the day, I think rates of cholecystitis are still very low. And your job for now is to get that bilirubin down, palliate the patient, um, and get a stent in there. Um, certainly, if cholecystitis does develop uh, down the line, which, again, is rather rare regardless of what type of stent you place, there are options down the line. I think at the end of the day, you just want to get drainage for the patient. Are there any other factors that come into play uh, when you're choosing the stent, whether it's be it plastic, fully covered, partially covered? I mean, what's going through your head? Yeah, so if we're dealing with a, uh, a metastatic patient, um, you know, I think metal uh, versus plastic metal is the way to go. They have higher patency rates uh, across the board. I think that's now um, sort of a, a, an accepted fact at this point. So you want to place a metal stent. Um, again, when we start debating whether we place a fully versus partially or uncovered stent, again, you want to place a metal stent. If you're looking at the uh, cystic duct insertion, you want to keep it below that. Generally speaking, um, you know, uh, you want to place uh, any stent that's going to bridge the tumor, avoid the cystic duct. When we talk about fully versus partially versus uncovered, I think you have some options. Um, so if we're talking about a patient who you may think go to surgery, I think your best bet is to do a fully covered stent because you still have that option on the table to remove the stent or the surgeon can remove it at the time of surgery. Um, when we talk about uh, someone who's metastatic, um, you know, as we were discussing, oftentimes partially covered stents are great in this indication because you're getting some tissue ingrowth at the proximal portion, the distal end, so that you're mitigating the risk of migration. You have that covering over the, the body of the stent to avoid tissue ingrowth. So you're sort of getting the best of both worlds. So I think, you know, partially covered stents are probably underutilized, and I think they're great in this situation with a metastatic patient. Um, I don't think it's ever wrong to place an uncovered stent. I think, uh, I think they work and they work well, but I think it's something to think about in terms of metastatic patients, whether you want to place a partially covered stent. What about bringing the patients back after you've placed the stent, especially in the metastatic group? Is there any consideration to proactively bring them back and why or why not? Yeah, again, we're dealing with a, a, a patient with metastatic pancreatic cancer. Um, so again, a very tough diagnosis. And these patients often experience symptoms either related to jaundice and, and pruritus or itchiness, um, pain, other issues related to chemotherapy or radiation. And, and our job is really to palliate these patients. So I try to minimize the amount of procedures uh, we perform on these patients, or frankly, any patient, right? We want to minimize uh, any risk to the patient, discomfort, um, and costs. So for these patients, I don't bring them back routinely. I think we've seen in the, in the longer-term studies that we have excellent patency rates for, these, um, for metal stents, regardless of whether they're covered or not. Um, so I don't schedule routine um, follow-up. I do inform the patient and I inform the oncologist to keep an eye out for signs of biliary obstruction, so fever, rigors, rising LFTs. And certainly if we start to see that, 
um, then we can always bring them back and, and repeat in the RCP and see what kind of inter intervention we need to do, whether there's just a development of biofilm and sludge within the stent, we can sweep it out. Um, if there's tissue ingrowth, we can place another uh, uh, metal stent within the first or even some plastics. But generally speaking, we try to minimize our impact on these patients. Yeah, at that point, uh, the patient's you know, more than likely trying to enjoy the time they have left with their family and Bringing them back to the hospital is probably not ideal for those patients nor their families. So right, right, and and you know this may be beyond the scope of our current uh, uh, talk here, but again, we're trying to palliate. So let's put in our let's get our diagnosis, let's get our metal stent in place, you know, at our index procedure, and if they're having a lot of pain, they're requiring narcotics, let's do our uh, celiac plexus neurolysis, you know, all in one setting, and let's get them out the door and let them enjoy the time that they have. That's great. Thanks, Dr. Watson, for all you're doing. So let's switch gears quickly, and I think you touched on this, uh, but let's talk about the patients that are borderline resectable or locally advanced. You've published quite a bit in that area. Uh, yeah, I don't know if quite a bit, but we've, <laughs> we've done a few things in that area. But um, yeah, so uh, yeah, we have a lot of experience treating these patients, and um, as you may or may not know, but most patients are going to present in this fashion. So a lot of patients present with metastatic disease, but a good portion of patients are going to uh, present with borderline resective or locally advanced disease. In fact, most of them are. Um, and so this presents a challenge for the whole treating team in terms of how best to manage these patients. Again, our job, rather than just palliating the patient, our job is also to sort of tee up the patient for surgery uh, down the line. Um, in the oncology world, they're getting more and more aggressive with their types of chemotherapy and radiation and so forth. And and more patients are able to make it, fortunately, to surgery. It's still a small percentage, but more, that percentage is growing over time. Um, so again, what our job is to decompress the bile duct, made, make sure that they're not presenting again with cholangitis anytime during their treatment period and get them to surgery and place a stent that the surgeon can remove. So meaning that uh, we're placing uh, fully covered metal stents. And the reason being, uh, there are a couple of those. So number one, uh, you want to place a fully covered stent rather than a partially or uncovered stent because the surgeon needs to be able to remove that at the time of surgery. We've talked to our surgeons, even nine, nine months of chemotherapy, extended time, they're able to just pull that out like butter and they can get it out. So that's the most important thing. So you really want to place a fully covered stent in that situation. Now you ask yourself, well, if the patient's just going to have a stent in temporarily, maybe we should just place plastic stents and that's good enough. Um, and so we published a series on this, a multi-center study looking at the performance of plastic stents versus fully covered metal stents in the setting of downstaging chemotherapy for pancreatic adenocarcinoma. And the bottom line is that we saw that plastic stents don't perform well in this, in this setting. So they would stay patent for about 55 days, and then patients would come in with a rising LFTs, recurrent cholangitis, and require reintervention. Um, and the thinking behind this is that they're getting um, uh, downstaging chemotherapy and or radiation. There's high cell turnover, there's increased biofilm, and so forth. So we're thinking that these the plastic stents aren't performing well in that indication. So, and then when we look at the cost analysis for this situation as well, um, if we're able to save just one ERCP um, for these patients, then you have a cost benefit from putting in that uh, metal stent up front. And so, based on that data and other and other studies that have been published, the NCCN has actually published a guideline on this for these patients who have locally advanced or borderline resectable um, pancreatic cancer with biliary obstruction. You should be placing a short uh, fully covered metal stent. And by short, we mean usually a 1040 uh, fully covered stent. If you need a 1060, obviously you can place it, but placing the shortest possible fully covered stent in the setting of downstaging chemotherapy. So super interesting. You're, you mentioned chemotherapy. Uh, and my understanding is that 
standard of care now has shifted more towards the neoadjuvant approach for these patients versus getting, you know, adjuvant chemotherapy after surgery. Why do you think that is? Yeah, that's a it's a complex issue, um, and I think there's been a lot of input from oncology, surgery, and GI into this field now. But um, you know, there's a couple of reasons. One one thought is that when we're for these patients, when you take them straight to surgery, outcomes are still poor. And we think that probably pancreatic adenocarcinoma, and maybe all cancers, frankly, especially GI tract cancers, are systemic diseases, meaning that you have a local tumor, but you have circulating tumor cells. And if we take them to the OR, hack out half the pancreas, and they still have circulating tumor cells, and they represent with metastatic disease a year later, you've done the patient no favor, and you've put them under a highly morbid uh, operation. So the thinking is, one, is let's treat these circulating tumor cells um, as much as possible and then take them to the operating room. The second thought and corollary of that is that we're also looking for favorable uh, tumor biology. So, for example, you have a patient that presents. We, we uh, subject them to neoadjuvant chemotherapy. We want to see how the tumor behaves in the face of that chemotherapy. Our drugs aren't great. You know, they're not perfect. Um, you know, we're mainly using fulfurinox and gemabraxane these days. Um, but we want to see how the tumor behaves over time. And if we're seeing falling CA199, if we're seeing tumor shrinkage, for example, um, either by cross-sectional imaging or EOS, um, and the patient's tolerating the chemotherapy, then we think perhaps this is a, a tumor with favor- favorable biology. They would be amenable to surgery, and they're going to do well. Conversely, if we have a patient who still has rising CA199, tumors growing in size, not responding to our, our chemotherapy, maybe this is not the best candidate for surgery, and they're going to actually going to do poorly. So I think there's a couple of reasons why now we're moving towards this approach. And if you look from stem to stern in the, in the GI tract, actually, this has been the trend across the board. Esophageal cancer, colorectal cancer, um, rectal cancer, all these things. So um, it's a little bit of treating a systemic disease and then also seeing if we can select the right patient to undergo this highly morbid operation and have the best can- uh, chance for cure. No, it's a great process in place. And, and the nice part about it is, you know, you know, to your point is, you know, you can make a good decision throughout that neoadjuvant period and, and probably give the patient the best chance post-surgery as well. So you also mentioned trying to do everything you can to prevent cholangitis during that neoadjuvant period, which may or may not include radiation too. What happens if the patient has ascending cholangitis during the neoadjuvant period when they're getting regular chemotherapy infusions? I mean, what, what happens to that process or that schedule? Yeah, that's really tough. And, you know, our oncologists are acutely sensitive to this, and they will call us on our cell phone right away when they see the first sign because, you know, once a patient has a rising bilirubin, you know, what, what the oncologists are really trying to shoot for is to normalize that bilirubin as much as possible, below two if you can, because, that re- you know, when you have a high bilirubin and hepatic dysfunction, that really limits the type of chemotherapy they can use. Um, so they really want to get that bilirubin down. The second issue with cholangitis is once these patients, they're immunocompromised, um, you know, and, and they're getting chemotherapy. And once they get cholangitis, I mean, that's really tough for the patient. They can, you know, spend some time in the ICU. And obviously that grinds everything to a halt in terms of the therapy. And we've lost time. Um, we, you know, we're getting behind the eight ball, so to speak. So um, really, it's really important to make sure that we avoid that. And like I said, having good communication with the patients themselves and with the oncologist is critical to really jump on top of that as much as possible. And again, this is why we've done this research in this area is because we really want to make sure that the patients are going to have the best outcome for this really tough disease. And so now we, now we know we've got to place these metal stents, these fully covered stents. What percentage of the patients in this group actually make it to the operating table? Ooh, that's, a, that's, a, that's a tough one. Yeah, it, it, 
I think it depends. Uh, I'll hedge on that one. It really depends because um, what we found uh, when you look at the data, you know, uh, probably less than 50% probably going to make it. Um, but alternatively, what I've seen anecdotally, um, both nationally and also with our local institutions, is that surgeons are also being very aggressive in terms of, of what actually constitutes a resectable disease. Um, so meaning that if the patient has a good response um, to their chemotherapy, they see a 99 is dropping, the tumor is at least stable. Um, sometimes even they'll ask us to do an EUS afterwards to restage, to really look at those vessels and see, and they say, gosh, you know, the patient's doing well. They have a great performance status, meaning they're tolerating the chemotherapy. They're going to be a good surgical candidate. Gosh, you know, we really want to get into the R if we can. They're a young guy or gal. Um, they'll ask us to restage. Uh, one of the things we've done is actually another area we published on is actually, um, doing a repeat EUS and looking at the vessels and actually, um, Rebiopsying or doing another FNA of the tissue around the vessels. So there's this term called um, periarterial soft tissue cuffing, uh, what we see on, on CAT scan. And what that means is that um, there's tissue, hypo, so hypo-enhancing tissue around the vessels that renders them locally advanced, right, at the time of the diagnosis. But they've gone through their chemotherapy. They've responded well. The CA-99 is down. Everything looks great, but you still see that cuffing on the CT. Now, is that actually tumor, or is that just sort of desmoplastic response and just sort of scar tissue, for lack of a better word? So they've asked us, asked us to go in with an EUS and actually perform an FNA of that tissue around, say, the celiac artery, and say, is it really, is it really, you know, residual cancer, or is it just scar tissue? And, and you know, and using that incremental information actually gets more patients to the operating table. So um, I think there's still a role for us to to actually be more aggressive and actually help our surgeons get our patients to to basically treatment and cure. Yeah, that's super interesting. And is that is that a relatively new development or or technique that you've? Yeah, we've we've done this over the last couple of years. We actually just uh, had that paper accepted for publication now, um, just about uh, maybe two weeks ago. Actually, this was very timely. So again, another application for EUS in that in, the, in these patients. What journal would that be in? Uh, it's, a, it's a journal of uh, gastrointestinal surgery. Perfect. Yeah. If the patient doesn't make it to surgery, then what's the plan of action? Yeah, so if they don't make it to surgery, I think then you sort of triage them back into our metastatic uh, patient population that we talked about earlier. So again, where our job is to palliate and to minimize our impact as endoscopists on these patients. So you still have your metal stent in place. It's still patent. It's still doing its job. Um, if there's any trouble, obviously, we can go back in and re-intervene. But otherwise, I think we leave things as they are. Always keep in mind that these patients are requiring opiates. And, and you know, think about whether you want to perform a celiac plexus neurolysis, EUS-guided. Um, to help palliate their pain symptom. Um, and uh, But yeah, our job is to sort of do our job and get out of the way and let them live their life. This has been really interesting, Dr. Watson. Thank you, and I really appreciate both perspectives, both the metastatic patient and then also the locally advanced and borderline patients. As we wrap up, if there's just one sort of silver bullet that you want the audience to remember about managing distal biliary obstruction, what what, what do you think that would be? Yeah, I think number one, I think our job is, you know, you got to get access and you got to get a stent and do what you can do. I think in this era of um, uh, patients getting downstage chemotherapy and that being the standard of care, you really want to place your metal stents, okay, in these in borderline resectable and certainly in metastatic patients. Fully covered metal stent in the setting of downstaging chemotherapy is now the standard of care, okay? So if there's any doubt in your mind, you're going to place your fully covered first. Um, and then when it comes to cholecystitis, I know we've, we're all quite sensitive to that, but again, avoid the cystic duct when you can, 
But at the end of the day, just get their bilirubin down, decompress the patient. We can deal with it if we need to later. Well, thanks again, Dr. Watson. It's been great having you on the Endocast. Yeah, thanks so much. It's been a, it's been a blast. And uh, enjoy the rest of EUS Live. All right, thanks. And that's Endocast. Please follow Boston Scientific Endoscopy on our Twitter and LinkedIn feeds. You can also visit our virtual education platform, EduCare. That's E-D-U-C-A-R-E dot bostonscientific.com and choose gastroenterology. The site features over 180 resources, including physician-led educational videos, lectures, case studies, device training videos, procedural tips, and techniques. Thanks for listening. Endocast listeners, an important disclaimer. These materials are intended to describe common clinical considerations and procedural steps for the use of reference technologies, but may not be appropriate for every patient or every case. Decisions surrounding patient care depend on the physician's professional judgment in consideration of all available information for the individual case. Boston Scientific does not promote nor encourage the use of its devices outside of their approved labeling. Case studies are not necessarily representative of clinical outcomes in all cases as individual results may vary. The law restricts devices to sell, buy, or on the order of a physician. Indications, contraindications, warnings, and instructions for use can be found on the product labeling supplied with each device. Products shown for information purposes only may not be approved for sale in certain countries. This material is not intended for use in France and by prescription only. Thank you.